Welcome to The Book Podcast, where we discuss books about the book, the Bible, with your hosts, Scott Moffat, Gabriel Penfield, and Gary Karwaski. Welcome, listeners. This is the 32nd podcast of the book. We certainly appreciate you taking time to listen to our interviews with authors who have written important Christian books. If you have not subscribed to the podcast, please do by checking the button or hitting the button and checking the notification bell as well. It's our privilege today to welcome Chris Katukla back to our podcast. Chris is a 2011 graduate of Dallas Seminary and a well-respected Bible teacher and host of Friends of Israel Radio Ministry. Chris, we share these podcasts with our listeners in order to encourage them to read good books, Mm -hmm. ones that you can pick up at Amazon or pick up at Friends of Israel's website. Chris Katoka, as I said, is a seminary-trained Bible teacher, and he also specializes in Jewish ministries. As noted, he's the author podcaster, radio personality, and conference speaker. I am joined today by my fellow podcasters, Gary Karwaski. Want to raise oh, yeah. your hand? There? Here we go. Mm-hmm. And my fellow podcaster, Gabriel Penfield, who is also my grandson. I am your host, Scott Moffat. And the book that we look at today is Israel Always, get my hand out of the way, by Chris Katulka. And the first question I'd like to ask you, Chris, is this. Why did you write this book? And why did you, why at this time? Well, I want to thank everybody for having me back again. I love this crowd, this trio here um, from our last uh, meeting that we had together a couple of years ago uh, Mm -hmm. for the common thread. But I I, uh, I was actually uh, very kindly asked by Harvest House um, to write the book. Uh, Harvest House had um, uh, really, really wanted to write a book. Um, that would be a great primer for people to go to the Holy Land, to kind of dip their toe in the Holy Land before they get over there. Um, and so it's uh, Israel always serves as a, a way to get somebody kind of acclimated to what they'll see in the Holy Land uh, when they get to Israel. The history, uh, the tension, um, the miracle, all of those things that makes up the modern state of Israel and biblical Israel. Um, the other component to the book that I love the most is, and I'm sure that all of you uh, gentlemen and your listeners probably know that when you study Israel, you study it, and oftentimes uh, the 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 layout of Israel, the historical layout of Israel, is divided. There's people will study biblical Israel, and they'll even divide that up: Old Testament Israel, intertestamental history Israel. New Testament, first century Israel, and all of the culture and practices that come with that. And then they talk about what maybe happened to the Jewish people uh, for 2,000 years in diaspora. You splice that up, and then they splice up modern Israel. You can read great historical books like Gilbert's um, on the history of Israel, Martin Gilbert, and his tome that he's done on Israel and modern Israel. And, And then you divide it up even more, and you talk about the future for Israel prophetically. The thing I love about Israel always looks at all of that. Briefly, 
in one book. Get a feel for it kind of an introduction into all things Israel and the Jewish people, culture, customs, all of it, and uh, some theological issues as well. Yeah, there's no doubt there's a lot going on in the book. You, A lot is happening there. Uh, it's very ambitious, I think. Yeah, when I picked up the book, yeah, you know, when I picked up the book, I didn't realize it was a handbook on a tr taking a trip to Israel. Um, it's not marketed that way, but that's what a lot of it is. Yep, that's the way that Harvest House really wanted to promote the book was a way for people to engage with Israel from a couple different angles. First, if mm -hmm. you want to go to Israel, that's great. You can see various places to visit. Uh, maybe you're not planning on going to Israel, but you wanted to study the history of Israel. Uh, you could do it that way. Um, and so there's just a lot of different angles that you can take from this book, um, To uh, a lot of takeaways. And the final one that is I love the most is, hey, if you're discouraged in your Christian walk right now and you, you need to see the faithfulness of God in your in your life, well, look no further than seeing what God's done with Israel and his faithfulness to Israel and and so there's that component to it as well that that is really helpful. But no, I agree with you. It's it is an ambitious work. Uh, that's what they wanted though. They wanted something that bites history throughout the Bible, throughout history, throughout prophetic, uh, the prophetic component as well, in, in one snapshot. Well, let's get into the book, Gabe. Yeah, going to Israel, you kind of see different um, the different sites of Israel, and it really becomes real. And so, like, I know my grandpa, Scott, and Gary, they're planning on going to um, Israel in June. I was able to go in March. I know you, Chris, have gone many, many times. Um, and so have they been many, many times. But it, it becomes real. But an important date, an important thing um, becomes very obvious when you're looking at the Israel people. And that's the exile, right? When they're physically taken from the land and brought to a different land, Babylon. And we went through uh, Daniel at Word of Life this week, our last class, but we talked about the exile. Can you explain the terms like pre-exilic, pre-exilic, exilic, post-exilic? Um, explain what that means, why they're important, why we should pay attention to them. Um, can Could you explain that for us? Yeah, that is a great question. And um, it, it sounds like you might have had my good friend, Dr. Paul Weaver, as a teacher for uh, mm. Daniel at Word of Life. Was that who it was, Gabe? Yeah, he's yep. a great teacher, too. Um, you know, uh, when you talk about the Bible and you look at the and you look at the history of the Old Testament and even as it goes into the New Testament, one of the most defining moments in in the scriptures, there are a lot of them, but one that really defines how we understand what the Old Testament was doing and bleeds into the New Testament is this moment of the exile. And finally, God's patience had run thin, thin enough with his people that he exiled them. He banished them from the land of Israel, the promised land, the land that he gave to the Jewish people, according to a promise he made to Abraham. And you can read about those exiles um, in the book of Second Kings. Um, and Second Chronicles and Jeremiah and the the exiles that take place uh, happen uh, to to two different groups over a period of time. In 722 BC, the northern ten tribes of Israel were carried away by the Syrians, and by 586 BC, through a series of exiles, Nebuchadnezzar the Babylonian king of the Empire of, of Babylon 
carries away uh, the Jewish people living in Judea and Jerusalem, and he destroys the temple. So anything that happens prior to 586 BC is talking about a pre-exilic Israel. This is Israel that has a temple. These are uh, the, the Judites have a temple. They have a kingdom. They have a king. They have their laws, whether they were following God or not. It's pre-exilic. Uh, and then what happens is when they get kicked out of the land in 586 and, and uh, for the next 70 years, uh, as they're scattered throughout the what was the known world at that time, Persia and what is modern day Iraq and, and Iran, um, and uh, uh, as they're scattered, you know, actually, it changes the way the Jewish people interact with the world. Um, and it changes the way that even Jewish people begin to think and act with relationship to how they would interact with the Gentile world around them, which is so important because this is where we get a lot of the books that Jewish people read today, rabbinical books called the Talmud, because there are a lot of them have to do with how do we relate as Jewish people in a Gentile world apart from the temple and apart from Jerusalem. And during that time, the prophets Daniel uh, are writing and the prophets Ezekiel are writing. These are called exilic prophets. They're writing from the exile. And then you have post-exilic because Cyrus the Great in 538 BC permitted the Jewish people to return home and to establish their homeland again, to rebuild Jerusalem, rebuild the temple. And ultimately what happens is they, uh, a group of them do return um, and they rebuild and uh, the prophets had to encourage them to rebuild. Those are post-exilic prophets, post-exilic Jewish people who are, who are listening to the word of God from prophets like Zechariah, Haggai and Malachi. And so this moment, though, and, and Gabe, it's a great question. It will define how Jewish people interact in the New Testament, because the Jewish people were still in exile. There were Jewish people living all around the world. And the way that they would understand uh, the rebuilding of the temple and what was going on with the temple and those laws that Jesus calls them a burden, ultimately. The man-made laws were all originating. The rabbinical laws, pharisaical laws, were all originating from this time called the exile that would develop over a period of time, even, even until post-Jesus. And so yeah. it really defines, I mean, the exile will define culture. It will define the different types of Jewish people, all of that. Um, and it all happens around 586 BC. Yeah. And and I'll you guys can jump in. I just got a quick comment. Like, that 586 BC is a big deal because right around there, right before then, Ezekiel records it like a big change in the history of Israel is the leaving of the Shekinah glory from the temple. Like the New Testament, right? They got this great temple that Herod built, this huge temple. The Shekinah glory is not in that temple like it was during the reign of Solomon and during the reign of, right, with the tabernacle into the temple. And then the Shekinah glory leaves right before the deportation and then they're gone. And there still hasn't been Shekinah glory in the temple. And that's not going to return until Jesus comes back. But we'll talk about that later. Um, guys, you have anything to say? Any questions? Gary? Oh, I'm fine with this. All right. So we're talking about post-exilic. Um, wow. And this is probably, this is for our listeners. After that, there were 400 years of silence where there were no prophecies, no prophets speaking. That is an awful long time. That's longer than I've lived. <laughs> yeah, exactly. What is all that about? 
how did that come? And and obviously we know from some Hebrew and Jewish history things happened during that time. But how does that play into leading us into the New Testament period? One of my favorite areas of study is intertestamental history. And we go. gave it, we dedicated a chapter to inter intertestamental history between Malachi and Matthew because it's incredibly important to 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 understanding how we read Matthew and the subsequent books of the New Testament. Um, and I honestly, I think the quintessential thing to understand about the intertestamental history is that God didn't speak through revelation, through a prophet. That's why it's called the 400 years of silence. But at the same time, God was incredibly active in using the Jewish people and moving in history. And one of the components that shows up over and over and over again throughout intertestamental history is the tension of assimilation. It's the oh. tension that Jewish people will constantly face as long as there are Gentiles in the land. And I will tell you something. Again, this happens with post-exile. And man, we could do a whole podcast on just the oh, exile yeah. and the ramifications of the Jewish people going into exile. But you have to think, you have to think about this. When the Jewish people returned under uh Sheshazbar and Zerubbabel and Ezra and Nehemiah, as they're returning, um, you know, Zerubbabel is not called the king of Judah or the king of Israel. He's called a governor. And that's because the king, Persia, is still in control of that area. It's still a pagan-controlled land, and he only gave the Jewish people the right to return to rebuild. That's why Zerubbabel, who, who could have been a king of da a king like uh, a, a Jewish king because he comes from the line of David, he could have set up a throne, but he couldn't because they were he was a governor under the auspices of the Persian Empire, which means the pagans still controlled the land. They were still the ones giving permission. And that would happen during the Persian Empire. That would happen under uh, the Greek Empire until finally the Jewish people stood up um, during what we would know as the Hanukkah season and the whole story of Hanukkah and uh, and create an empire. They would defeat the Greeks and win back the land and create an independent state again. But there's that tension constantly, gentlemen, of of this back and forth between assimilation into the into a pagan culture as Jewish people and returning back to God's law and assimilation and returning back to God's law. And you see it worked out in the various parties of the New Testament. The Sadducees loved assimilation. The Sadducees were rich, powerful, loved Rome, loved the influence of Rome, all of that. Pharisees were purists. Yeah, not so they much. loved the law. They loved, they lo had a zeal for God, a zeal for purity. Yep. And so again, that's, I would say, is very important understanding the intertestamental history. All right, so you had several emerging empires, and then they disappeared. You had the Babylonians, the Persians, and then the Greeks. Um, it seems to me that probably the most important was the, the Greek empire, uh, like Alexander the Great. And they came in and dominated Israel, and they began what was called the Hellenization of nations, including Israel. Can you tell us why that's so important to 
the Bible, the history of Jesus in the New Testament times and why that continues to be an influence today? Yeah, you know, again, the whole Hellenization process of the world, the known world at that mm -hmm. time, Scott, it was a double-edged sword. The first, the first on, on the negative side of it is that the Jewish people were under the oppression of the Greeks. And they actually were under the, uh, I actually felt bad for Jewish people. They were stuck in the middle of two warring Greek empires, yep. the Ptolemies and the Seleucids. It's Daniel 11. They were stuck right in the middle of the, of the of the both of them. That's exactly right. The king of the north and the yep. king of the south. And, you know, the Jewish people, I, I feel bad for them. They had to make a choice. You know, if I can, if I can actually be more modern thinking, um, today I feel bad for the state of Israel. The state of Israel is in, the modern state of Israel is in the Asian continent. They're in the Asian continent. And who is the rising empire of the world right now? China. It's China. China is on the rise. It's a fear us Americans have in some way of losing the influence that we have in the world. And we're watching it slip away. And so if you think about where Israel is, they are stuck in the middle of the West and they are stuck in the middle of the East. And one wrong move, you know, could compromise a, a very strategic relationship that they have with America or a very strategic relationship that they actually have with China. It could come to that type of realization. Um, the same thing was happening in the days of the intertestamental period where Israel was stuck in the middle between two warring Greek empires. And it will do two things. Number one, they will be battling, they will be stuck in the middle of this thing and be battling back and forth between these two empires and choosing which side to take. Uh, the other is that in the Hellenization process that Alexander the Great brought, he brought a common language that would be spread throughout the Greek Empire, uh, which was the largest empire of that time, which means after only the course of uh, less than about a century, uh, all nations at that time were speaking Greek, which is the reason that our New Testament um, is not written in Hebrew. It's written in Greek, in Koine Greek, uh, which was the common language at the time. So in some way, Alexander the Great helped to spread the word of God and helped to give it a language that was more defined. Um, it even would uh, later become, de, uh, before the New Testament, the 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 Old Testament, the, the Tanakh, the Torah, the prophets and the writings would be translated from Hebrew into Greek in the Septuagint um, about 200 years or so before Jesus. So Greek was already influencing uh, the Jewish world. And you can imagine... <clears throat> You can imagine what a religious Jewish person, I don't think people think about this. What do you think a religious Jewish person was thinking when all of a sudden they were translating the holy word of God from Hebrew into that pagan language yeah, Greek? Yeah, people don't yeah. think about that. Oh, yeah. I mean, they were probably, what are you doing? This The holy word of God to Greek, oh, you know, crying. I'm sure there was weeping and gnashing of teeth over the idea of, of that. and so. But it actually helped to, um, you know, most Jewish people at this time were not speaking Hebrew. They were speaking, or even Aramaic, they were speaking Greek. And so in order to influence those Jewish people living in Alexandria, living in Antioch, living in various areas of the Greek empire, you couldn't write a Hebrew Bible. You needed a Greek Old Testament. And so there, again, there's the Hellenization process, which opened up more avenues for spreading the, the message of the Torah. And on the other end of the spectrum, 
it would force eventually assimilation um, to the point of Jewish people under Antiochus, the Seleucid king, the fourth, preventing Jewish people from even honoring the Sabbath or circumcision or being Jewish. They would he would attempt to eradicate Judaism and Jewish people altogether. Uh, so, again, that intertestamental history is just ripe with how we understand the nationalism, the independence and the de desire for the Messiah to come. They were waiting for somebody to come to rid them of the empires that constantly were pressuring them and oppressing them. Well, a thought and then a question. The thought is, um, I've often heard Israel referred to as the land between because they were stuck between uh, two huge, can't get my hands here, right? Two huge empires, um, you know, and that seems to be continuing today between the East and the West. But uh -huh. uh, the question I have is, uh, a lot of people ask me this, maybe you can speak authoritatively to it. I know the Greek language spread throughout Israel. Did Jesus and his disciples speak in Greek or Aramaic, or did they speak in both languages? You know, I, there's no record that I know of that Jesus spoke Greek. Mm -hmm. However, we have record that Greek was certainly in the land in the first century. Uh, I mean, we have uh, we have mosaics of synagogues and things of that nature with Greek writing and things of that nature. So Greek was definitely something that was present in the land during the days of Jesus. There's no doubt about that. I'm not I'm not familiar with any sense of him speaking Greek. We are very familiar with the fact that he spoke Aramaic, especially right. as he's hanging on the cross and he the passion of the Christ. Eli, Eli, Lama, Sabachthani. Yeah, <laughs> right. exactly. Right. Uh, my God, my God, why have you right. forsaken me? Was in in, in Aramaic, and, and I'm sure and absolutely positive that when he stood up and read Isaiah uh, in the synagogue, he was not reading it in Aramaic. He was right. reading it in Hebrew. So and praying in Hebrew. Um, so. Yeah, I've a Greek I'm unfamiliar with, and I don't I, I've never heard of, I've never heard authoritatively about Greek being spoken yeah, by yeah. the Lord himself. All right, let's move on to the Romans. We kind of glanced on that just a little bit, but obviously they took over that whole area uh, as well. They conquered the uh, well, the then known world. Uh, Jesus comes during that time of the uh, of the of the Romans. Um, we talked about the. Uh, you talked about the Pharisees and the Sadducees. Let's talk about a couple other uh, groups that popped up: the Essenes and the Zealots. Let's talk about those two guys, the, the, those two groups, just a little bit. Yeah, um, the the Essenes actually probably date back. Uh, they we certainly date back prior to even the Roman period. Yes. So uh, they were they were uh, leaving. The Essenes were a group of religious. Just Jewish people that were tired with the politics of Jerusalem um, and thought that uh, the worship in Jerusalem and the leadership of Jerusalem were corrupt. Um, uh, and so they left and created their own community, um, scholars believe, which we know is the Qumran community, where they enhanced laws. It's actually quite amazing how they would take biblical law or even um, pharisaical law or what would be developed into rabbinical law, and they would add on to it uh, in order to become um, more righteous, if you will, or to protect the law even more. But they were extremely messianic 
and they gave us great insight as to how Jewish people were thinking about the Messiah, thinking about a coming kingdom, thinking about who the enemies were. Um, you know, a lot of times I've heard it before the, the, uh, that the New Testament, maybe you've heard this before. The New Testament is a very anti-Semitic book. I've heard that before. My own tour guide, who I love the most, tells me that the a Gospel of John's an incredibly anti-Semitic gospel. And I say, you can't be anti-Semitic when it's a Jewish guy condemning Jewish people. I, you can't be anti-Semitic right. when it's a family yeah. affair, you know? Um, and you have to not only condemn John then, you'd have to condemn the Essenes because the Essenes were laying into their people. They called them, you know, there was the light and the right. darkness and these people were in the darkness and all of this, you know, very um, anti-Jerusalem mentality and the anticipation of a coming king, a coming Messiah. Um, so it gives us some insights. Um, and they developed what would be called the Dead Sea Scrolls, which were found in 1947 by a Bedouin boy just prior to the uh, establishment of the state of Israel. And then the you want to start go. with the you want to start with the zealots, but let me ask you this question: Aren't the Essenes a very small group compared yeah, to the, the others? Yeah, uh, the Essenes were definitely a small group. We we certainly know they had an impact, right. though. Um, I don't I don't with the Essenes. I don't want to say with certainty. You know, I, I want to be careful saying this because there's debate. But you know, when John the Baptist appears, John the Baptist is. It's it's interesting that the gospel writers highlight what he was wearing and what he was eating, right. because what he was wearing and what he is eating and the things that he is saying are very similar to the things that the Essenes were wearing, the Essenes were eating, and uh, what they were saying. So there are, there's debate. I'll say there's high, there's a lot of debate on whether or not John the Baptist had come from that wilderness, right. which is south of Jerusalem. Um, but definitely a small group, Scott, a small group for sure. But what about the Zealots? Yeah, the Zealots were a nationalistic people that carried that same fervor that goes back to the Hanukkah story. Remember the Jewish people for, for you know, between uh, the Jewish people for a small bit of time. Uh, I want to make sure I get my dates right around 142 BC to 63 BC had an independent state. They had their own independence that it, they will lose that independence in 63 BC when Rome comes in with Pompeii. But I will tell you something that fervor, that independence will carry on and will live in the hearts of the Jewish people, that's the zealots. The zealots want independence. And I'll just end with this. When you read Josephus, Josephus wants to blame somebody in the Jewish community for what happened in, you know, with between the Jews and Rome. He wants to blame somebody. He doesn't want to blame all the Jewish people because he's Jewish and he's writing to a Roman audience. So in Josephus, he seems like he's blaming the zealots specifically for what happened in Jerusalem and Masada and uh, and ultimately the revolt that took place. So he wanted to blame, he wanted to take the blame away from all of the Jewish people and place it specifically on the zealots, the people with a nationalistic identity. I wish we could have time to talk about Masada, but we just can't. Um, it's it's an amazing thing. Let's let's move on in our in our Jewish history because we want to do this. We went through your book, the diaspora or diaspora. However you want to announce it. Uh, what is that? And it's, you know, we understand that the Jewish population was displaced.
after the destruction of Jerusalem in 70 AD by General Titus, who was going to become uh, emperor. Uh, but let's talk about diaspora and uh, and how that affects uh, the Jewish people. You know, I this is where I loved writing this chapter, actually, because um, even today, as a result of the diaspora, there are Jew the way that we understand Jewish people today comes as a result of the cultures that were built of Jewish people in diaspora. That means they're outside of the land. Uh, they're not living in the land. Um, and that goes back to as early as 135 A.D. when Hadrian kicked all mm -hmm. the Jewish people out of the land and renamed um, Israel uh, Stinia after Israel's enemies, the Philistines. And that's where we get the name Palestine today. And he he renamed Jerusalem Aelia Capitolina and yeah. put, a, I believe, a temple to Jupiter um, on the Temple Mount. And so that is what begins the process. And now people are kind of just floating throughout the Roman Empire. Um, they make their way up to Germany around, and we, we can, you know, from Italy to Germany. And uh, Germany is where you to get a group of people called Ashkenazi Jews ah, um, that develop around, around the fourth century AD. And uh, over time, they will develop a language for themselves called Yiddish, uh, where we get great words like I'm schlepping my book around everywhere. Or when you think about uh, the chutzpah of that person or or Oy vey, you know, all of these great words that we say in our American culture come from Ashkenazi culture. The food they eat, the matzah ball soup, the bagels, the lox and Ooh. cream cheese, Ooh. the, the uh, gefilte fish. Yep, all of that stuff. Yep, exactly. All of that stuff comes from Ashkenazi tradition um, that goes back to the time of Germany. Germany would ultimately persecute the, the Ashkenazi Jews that were living there, and that would mean they would move from Germany to Poland, and Poland would be epicenter of the Jewish community um, uh, for a very long time, Eastern Europe, and many of those Jewish people, the majority of Jewish people that suffered and died during the Holocaust were Ashkenazi Jews. Um, and you can actually trace their lineage, their bloodline, all the way back to the land of Israel. You can see trace from Israel to Rome, Rome to Germany, and then on, you know, on from there. And there's a couple good DNA tests, uh, articles that were done about the, I think it like comes down to like 30 phase that they can trace back to that would make up all of the Ashkenazi Jewish people today, which is a very large portion of Jewish people around the world. The other are Sephardic Jewish people. Uh, Sephardic Jews come from um, from the Iberian Peninsula. They come from Spain and Northern Africa. Um, and uh, they had their own language called Ladino that's still spoken today, just like Yiddish is spoken. Ladino is a mixture of Hebrew and Spanish. Yiddish is a mixture of Hebrew and German and Eastern. European languages, and uh, they have their own culture. Some of the greatest rabbis were Sephardic rabbis from Spain, um, like Ro uh, like uh, Rabbi Moses Maimonides, or also known as Rambam, very influential rabbi of the 12th century AD. Um, you have Mizrahi Jews. Those are Jews of the Middle East that were living in Yemen, Iraq, Iran, um, and uh, and uh, would come over to Israel. They would become called uh, the Middle Eastern Jews. Um, and finally, their Jewish people have always lived in the land of Israel. 
And so there's Jewish people that have always had a continual presence in Jerusalem, Tiberias, Safed, uh, um, and other uh, very holy cities um, uh, throughout the church age. Um, but they all, Jewish people during the diaspora were always moving for one reason and one reason only. They were always moving from the place in order to find freedom uh, from persecution. Exactly. And so um, you can trace that. 1492, when Columbus was setting the ocean blue for America, guess what? Uh, the the uh, king and queen of, of Spain. Good. That's right. We're banishing Jewish people land during yep, the Spanish Inquisition. <clears throat> so anyway, that's very important to understand the migration during the diaspora of the Jewish people. Since there was this diaspora with people, Jewish people all over the world, in almost every country of the world, and persecution being a commonality in almost all of those countries, in the late 1800s, we're going to move on here a little bit, uh, Zionism arose, uh, which was the desire by some to have a, a homeland back in Israel. Was it the atrocities that were committed by Hitler's Germany, which pushed the world over the edge to give Israel its own state? Or how do you view that? You want yeah, to comment that, on it? Uh, yeah, and that is a fantastic question too, Scott, because um, I actually believe the um, Holocaust gave sympathies for what was already there. Um, if you go back to eighteen, the late 1800s, a man named Theodore Herzl, who I document quite uh, yep, uh, right. regularly in the book, was establishing uh, not only a, a biblical, but more a political movement of Zionism in the world to establish a Jewish state again. And he would do it by trying to make alliances with the German Kaiser, by trying to win the hearts of the Turkish sultan to allow them to establish a Jewish state. He was signing agreements with politicians, all of it. I, I actually, in fact, tonight I'm doing a second class on Israel's independence and leaders online on our Zoom FOI equip classes. And I'm going to be talking about David Ben-Gurion tonight. But last week I looked Ooh, at uh, Peter there. Herzl. And, yep, come. Yep. The, I hope you come or your, your listeners can come. Um, but, uh, you know, it's fascinating because there was already a, a World Zionist Congress established. The, by 1917, the British government, who had control over the land of Israel, British Palestine, already to help establish a Jewish state in the area of Palestine. Um, by 1920, the San Remo Agreement, which brought, which brought together several of the major nations of the world, would permit the Jewish people to establish a homeland in, in, in what is Israel today. All of that was happening prior to 1930s and on when the Holocaust was ramping up. So when the Holocaust ends, sympathy of the world is already in place now for what was established. And what should be noted over and over again for our friends who are listening is that Jewish people did not go in and steal the land people. They bought the land and the world permitted them through the United Nations, through the San Remo Agreement, through the League of Nations, through the British government. All of these nations approved the Jewish people to establish a homeland. They did not steal land. They were permitted to establish a country. Yeah. And so that's very important. And they didn't steal it. The world gave them permission. That's what they were waiting for. Yeah, that, that's a critical point, Chris, because it was all part of the Ottoman Turk Empire. And so that was all attributed. I mean, if if the Jews stole Palestine, then w what happened in Turkey? 
It's the same yeah. same situation, but we don't have a problem with Turkey, but we got a problem with Israel. So, uh, you know, it's that's definitely anti-Semitic. A hundred percent. And I'll even I'll add this, too, if I if I can, with Theodore Herzl, he actually went to the Turkish um, uh, and uh, he said, hey, look, it, here's the deal. The Jews, if you give us the permission to return to Palestine and to establish homeland there, we'll pay off the debts of the Turkish people and we'll help establish your financial system in Turkey and we'll help correct where you're falling short. And they said, no, we don't want that. Yeah. Um, and yeah. so there was a lot of uh, inner workings going on there, which are interesting. I wanted to ask you about the importance of two declarations. One was the Balfour Declaration in 1917. And the other one was the Peel Commission of 1937, and things seem to have changed. If you look at the original uh, concept of the land that would be given to Israel, it was huge. And then by 1937, it had been pushed all the way to the uh, west side of the of, um, Jordan River. Can you speak to that a little bit? What happened in those 20, 20 years? between 1917 I think the British, Yeah, I think the British started to regret their decision of the Balfour Declaration, um, mm -hmm. especially as Balfour moves on and the governments begin to change. And they realize that what they've created in British Palestine is a nightmare, you mm -hmm. know, uh, according to them. You know, right. uh, they were very ambitious. And I think there were a lot of Bible Christians who were anxious to see the Jewish people return to their ancient homeland in the British Parliament, Balfour himself. Um, and so you can't get rid of the Balfour Declaration. It's a declaration. You can't undo it. Uh, but you can begin to change the, the land allocations of what would be considered a Jewish state. And so what was happening is as they were waiting for this state to be established, the Arabs got antsy that were living in the area. They knew that the Jewish people were given permission to establish a state. So as they begin to instigate and cause terrorist acts, the Jewish people respond and the British army, the British uh, uh, are stuck in the middle of it all in the Middle East where they don't want to be. And it's just spiraling down. And so instead of going all in on a Jewish state, they begin to uh, appeal to the sympathies of the Arab community, the living there. And so they'll begin to to ban Jewish people from returning to the homeland. Yeah. Uh, they'll limit mm. immigration almost to nothing. Right. Um, all of that happens up until um, the Exodus incident where uh, a, a group of British um, diplomats go over and from the U.N., and they see, actually, it's the UN over, and they see them turning Holocaust survivors right. back to Germany, basically. And they said, we do something here. This is out of control. Um, and so, yeah, no, they lose sympathies because, in a big picture, because of the turmoil that was being created in the land itself. The Brits just uh, it created want to wash their hands of the whole thing, don't they? I thought the Germans held up, refused, uh -huh. their, refused them. Both. Yes. And I'll say this, too. There's also a big issue coming to play because people are in cars more. And in the 1920s and 1930s, automobiles are coming in. They need oil. And if you're going to upset somebody, I'd much rather upset the Jewish people than the entire Arab world right. where a lot of oil comes from. Right. So there was a lot of that at play for the British government as well. Mm -hmm. All right. Let's get to your buddy, Ben Gurion. Uh, 1948. This is a big step. Huge. And of course, it results in a, a war of independence. Let's kind of we're, we're try, 
but we're covering so much so fast, but we got to do it. Yeah, David Ben-Gurion is uh, a hero of the Jewish people. He's the first prime minister. Um, and uh, he, uh, one of my favorite stories of May 14th, 1948, the establishment of the state of Israel, is that only a select group of Jewish people were invited to come because the war was imminent to establish a Jewish state. Um, the United States knew, European countries knew, even Israel knew it was a 50-50 chance of survival. Uh, and so um, to keep things quiet, they invited only a select group of Jewish people um, to this event, to the independence, when they would read the Declaration of Independence. Well, try keeping a secret in Israel then and try keeping a secret in Israel now. It's impossible. It all got out and there were thousands of people standing outside uh, the art museum in Tel Aviv where the event was held. And uh, and David Ben-Gurion was to read the Declaration of Independence because Shabbat was coming. Sabbath was coming. There was tension that was going on. Oh, the work that Ben-Gurion had to do, gentlemen, to create a state impossible. Yeah. He had religious individuals on the on the right hand side who wanted Bible verses in the Declaration of Independence. And then you had communist secularists on the other end of the Jewish spectrum that were saying, if I see God's name in that thing, I'm not signing it out. And so <laughs> he had to balance the sides. And it's great because when they were going to read the, they wanted to do a prayer at the end and they said, no, we're not going to do it. And what happens? The rabbi at that time sneaks in as the prayer anyway, classic, classic. It's just, uh, it's, it's part, it's serious and comedic at yeah. the same time of the tension that was existing in that very moment. Uh, you know, uh, for the establishment of the state of Israel. But it happened and it was monumental in human history and biblical history. You name it. God promised he would return the Jewish people to the land and it would be David Ben-Gurion, a, 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 a man from Poland, uh, from Plonsk, Poland, um, who loved, the, was trained to be a Zionist, raised to be a Zionist, followed the teachings of Theodore Herzl, and actually even valued Christian teaching. Uh, it's amazing, actually. Uh, one of my colleagues, Steve Herzig, was touring um, Ben-Gurion's house a few years ago, and he was looking through his library, and there was a Friends of Israel worker who wrote a Christian book about Jesus, and it was on his shelf, Ben-Gurion's shelf. So he loved reading and understanding Christians more um, and uh, embracing um uh the, the 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 idea of a jewish state and he had a great say um jewish people in the land don't believe in miracle they depend on miracles mm -hmm. and so that was a great line from david ben-gurion we've only got a few minutes left so let me ask you this question we're going to have to skip over some time israel waged war with the islamic neighbors three times in their history so far their goal according to their own a documentation constitution is that at least a uh, uh, Hezbollah is to drive Israel into the sea. Do you foresee any kind of peaceful solution ever being come to agreement there before the Antichrist arises, or do you think? And do you think all of this really has its origin in the Jacob and Esau disagreement in Genesis? What are your thoughts on that? Yeah, um, I think it definitely goes back to some of the earliest accounts of the of the book of Genesis. Mm -hmm. um, 
for sure, because there's always been tension between Israel and its uh, family members, essentially, that have lived around them mm-hmm. um, uh, all the time uh, in the biblical era. Um, moving into the modern era, we know that can be made on certain levels between Jewish people and especially gold era um, of Jews in Spain when the and the Jewish people got along and established an amazing uh, relationship uh, over time. Um, uh, but then that all falls apart again. Uh, and even today, you see what's called the Abraham Accords. I just at an event last night in Washington, D.C., celebrating the Jerusalem Day with a bunch of politicians. And um, we talked about the Abraham Accords. We heard from Jason Greenblatt, who uh, was one of the um, uh, men that was tasked by President Trump to uh, create the Abraham Accords with uh, Jared Cook. And um, the things he said are just amazing that there's he said, I went to Qatar. He said in 2007, if you told me an Orthodox Jew would be walking the streets of Qatar, I would have laughed at you. He went to Saudi Arabia. He said, if, if you would have told me in 2017, I'd walk the streets of Saudi Arabia with a kippah on my head. I would have laughed in your face. And now he can do it. Um, so there are there there is pictures of peace. Um, but no, I, I don't think ultimately we'll see real peace in the Middle East or globally um, until the Lord Jesus returns. Uh, but there will be a time of peace that the Antichrist sets up uh, when he makes an end with Israel uh, because there has to be a rebuilding of a temple. And so, you know, there but again, that's just temporary peace. These are temporary moments of peace that's happened all throughout Israel's history is temporary peace. Um until finally the Prince Yeah, of you Peace can thank uh, Kevin McCarthy for that Jerusalem celebration, I believe. Um, and yep. they uh, they put down the uh, our, our uh, Muslim friends in Congress wanted to have that Nakba day, the catastrophe. They stopped that. So I think it shows at least there's a, a foundation in America where people, our government is still pro-Israel. Well, I, I think tentative. You know, this current administration is, has really kind of wrecked havoc with the Abraham Accords, and we're seeing stuff going on in the Middle East that is just not good. No, nope. running real short of time. It's a weird. Yeah, yeah. What about the the BDS movement? Can you speak to that? The boycott, divestment, and sanctions. Um, they compare Israel to South Africa and the uh apartheid movement is is tell us about that yeah bds i actually think bds is losing steam a little bit um but yeah i think it's losing steam because i think people see the reality when you go to israel uh, and you and i've worked at a hospital as a volunteer for a long time for many years in israel i worked alongside uh arab muslims arab christians in the hospital jewish uh, uh, people, Israeli Jewish people, Israeli Arab Christians or Muslims. I've worked alongside all of them. They're all Israeli citizens. They all work together. They all sit down and drink coffee together. They all talk together. They all talk politics together. They all go to the same hospital. They all go to the same, um, you know, community center. They all live in the same area for the most part. Um, there is racism. There's no doubt that there's racism in the, in the Middle East, in Israel. But 
uh, is it apartheid like South Africa, like the kind of apartheid that Nelson Mandela stood up against? It's not even close. It's not even. In fact, it offends a, uh, a, a gentleman named Kenneth Michaud, who was a South. Uh, he's a Christian man, but he was a parliament member in the South African parliament who lived through actual apartheid. And he goes to Israel and he, it's an offense to him that people would even call this apartheid when there are Arabs, Christians, Muslims, Jews walking mm. the same streets, going to whatever home they want to, working the jobs in the world, but it wasn't like that in apartheid uh, South Africa. So uh, the a, a political agenda to serve the political uh, desires of the Western societies to push boycott, divestment, and sanctions of Israel. Uh, and uh, as one of my good Palestinian friends, Bassem, says, he's a Palestinian human rights activist, he, they don't realize that BDS, boycotting, sanctioning, and, and divesting from Israel, doesn't hurt Israelis. It hurts Palestinians uh -huh. because Palestinians have jobs uh, in Israeli companies. And so when you say boycott those Israeli companies in the West Bank, well, who lives in the West Bank? Palestinians live in the West. So when when Ben and Jerry's pulls out of the West Bank, guess what? All those Palestinians that worked at Ben and Jerry's, now they lost their job. Uh, or or those ones that worked in Soda Stream, now they lost their job. Why? Because they find their self-righteous Western elites are doing the best they possibly can to push an agenda that doesn't help Palestinians, it hurts Palestinians. And that came from a Palestinian man himself, a man named Bassam, Bassem Eid. I encourage people to look him up. Anything else, Gary? Well, you keep, you tell us that we're about at time so uh, we can cut it if you need to. Well, go ahead. If you have, a, if you want to ask a question, please do. All right. Uh, I'm a big fan of Benjamin Netanyahu. I think he's done a tremendous job. Uh, I read his biography, BB. It's really well done, though he's um, obviously biased against the Palestinians in, very, in a lot of ways, and he has to be. Uh, why is he so a polarizing figure, though? Both, I think, in Israel and in the U.S. I think some people might compare him to, uh, oh, maybe Donald Trump with that kind of polarizing. Yeah. <laughs> um, let's talk about Ben, uh, Bibi, just a little bit. You can't get rid of Bibi Netanyahu. They call him King Bibi in Israel. Um, you have to imagine as an American, I mean, uh, there are some people that are ready. They were ready for Joe Biden to leave office after two weeks, you know. Well, Benjamin Netanyahu has been in power in Israel for more than yeah. 15 years. OK. Um, and so but he still is a powerhouse figure in Israeli politics. When he got ousted a couple of years ago or about two years ago, I said to everybody on the radio program, don't count Netanyahu out. He still has a ton of political cachet in Israel. And of course, he wins the yep, election yep. again. And actually, him him becoming prime minister made my book outdated before it was even printed. You know, <laughs> that I, I, I already need to go back for a reprint um, that he's back in office. But uh, Bibi Netanyahu is polarizing because of what he wants to change now. Number one, I think a lot of Israelis are done with Bibi Netanyahu. But uh, the, today, the big issue is the judicial reform that's going on. It's a very sensitive subject, um, and uh, primarily because Netanyahu was under indictment, and they feel like he's trying to do judicial reform in order to 
help himself and not actually help Israelis. Most Israelis want judicial reform, but want Netanyahu to be the one to do it. Um, And so plus his government right now is the right wing government that Israel has ever seen. We're talking extremely high religious, ultra orthodox, nationalistic individuals that a lot of Israelis don't necessarily gravitate toward Mm -hmm. Um, enough to put him in office. But the moment that they started uh, um, pushing certain agendas, the Israeli people, uh, many of them lost interest, Um, even though the media doesn't do a good job of, I think, portraying, though, what the real sentiments of Israelis feel at Netanyahu or the the, uh, changes that he's trying to make. So, you know, I think uh, the the media in uh, mimics a lot of what the media in America is like as well. In your book, you chapter on messianic fellowships, and you state, I think, and let me, I'm paraphrasing it, that there's nothing wrong with a converted Jew to participating in their religious heritage with those messianic fellowships. My question is, and I've bumped up against this many, many times, what about Gentiles who become Christians, obviously, but then they go to messianic congregations and they participate in what really is not their religious heritage. Should they keep feasts and keep the Sabbath? What are your thoughts on that? You know, I am a liberty in Christ individual, Mm -hmm. and it's hard to tell somebody what is a culturally accepted and not culturally accepted. You know, in, in, in Indian culture, they take their shoes off before they go in. Uh, nobody bats an eye at the fact that an Indian uh, individual might take their shoes off before they enter the, the, the church. Um, no one would even think twice. Oh, that's their culture. Um, you know, and if somebody was in the Indian culture and, and they took their shoes off as they walked in, even though they might not be Indian, you know, you wouldn't think anything of it. You know, it's because of what the New Testament teaches about Judaizers which is a, yeah. a podcast and a book in and of itself. It's true. Me, I always lean toward this. Uh, I don't think God was dissing the feasts. Uh, Jesus celebrated Passover. Jesus celebrated, he honored Shabbat. He, I believe Jewish people in the first century were going to Shabbat on Friday and Saturday, and then on Sunday, on workday, gathering together to meet in fellowship as followers of the Messiah. Um, I, that was going on through the fourth century um, with the Nazarenes. Um, and so uh, we know that from historical writings until finally the the church banned anybody keeping Sabbath from, from doing that under uh, the, the Constantine. Um, but to, I don't think that's what Paul was getting at. Paul was saying that you cannot force people to keep Sabbath. That's not biblical. You can't force a Gentile to keep Sabbath. You can't force a Gentile to uh, circumcision. Um, I always call the Apostle Paul the obedient Jonah. You know, Jonah was called to go to the Gentiles, and he went there. This, you know, he he was he was reluctant to go, oh, like and he that. still, yep, yeah, he, he, even to the and think about it, the the Ninevites, yeah. the Ninevites, Jonah didn't. Hey, you Ninevites have to get circumcised now. Hey, you Ninevites have to keep kosher. No, they repented. They believed that there was a God that was going to bring judgment. And that if they repent, he would forgive them and relent of his judgment. And it happened. And so, but Jonah was still sad about it. But but uh, uh, Paul goes to the Gentile world and does the exact same thing. He says, judgment's coming, but there is a way in order to find salvation and uh, to be saved from judgment. Um, and that is by believing in the Lord Jesus. 
Let me rephrase um, it. So, Let me reframe it though, Chris. Yeah. Um, my question is about Gentile believers now go and practice the feasts and keep the Shabbat. And the problem that I see with it is, well, first of all, yes, there is Christian liberty, but Paul didn't force anybody to go practice the Judaistic practices of, of his heritage. But secondly, there seems to be amongst those kind of people who go into Messianic fellowships who are Gentiles, they almost have a superiority about them. Like there's a deeper knowledge that you Gentiles in the church don't really get. And so that's kind of the question I was asking. What are your, what are your thoughts on that? That is where I think Paul and myself, and it sounds like you as well, uh, uh, disagree with that, that mentality being superior um, over uh, or, or above somebody else. Because like you have wearing the prayer shawl. Yep. You know? Again, if they wear, look at honestly, if they, they want to, they wear want a to prayer okay. Shawl, yeah. Yep. And they, but as long as they don't look at you and say, Scott, you're not wearing a prayer shawl, don't you know? And this is how you come to faith in Jesus. That's what I think. Uh, I think a lot of what Paul was speaking against. In fact, a word study that's done on the word Judaize, in, it's not a word that's commonly used in the Testament, um, it's used once by Paul. Um, and uh, the verb itself. And the word actually has not to do with the fact that Jewish people were telling Gentiles to Judaize, but that Gentiles were telling Gentiles to get circumcised. Uh, and there's a whole study going on right now about the issue of what does it mean to Judaize? Uh, a, Judy, a, a Jewish person doesn't Judaize. Uh, a Jewish person keeps the law and all that stuff. It's actually a Gentile who would Judaize. It's a fascinating right. study. I encourage people to look it up. Okay. But I, I agree with you. I, I, I don't think as if people are telling you, you need to do this in order to be saved, they're wrong. It's well, by I don't grace think alone it's, through faith alone. I don't think it's that so much, but it's sort of um, things become symbolic of where people are, are at. Uh, you know, it's one thing to go to Israel and put on a, what do you call it on the top of the head? Yarmulke. A yarmulke. It's another thing if you're wearing a yarmulke and a prayer shawl in America, which which people point to and think, wow, that's weird if you're not Jewish. You know what I mean? So there's a difference of trying to fit into a culture that already practices it and then changing your whole outlook and culture that you've been raised and practiced in to identify with a culture that doesn't exist here. Yeah, know, that's my thoughts. No, I appreciate those. And I, I agree with you. Uh, I Again, though, I don't, as long as people don't judge, the big yeah. issue was fellowship. You know, it's mm -hmm. the issue Paul was having was the issue of fellowship. Look, if, if somebody's telling you, you can't come in here because you're not doing this, then guess what? They're being unbiblical. They're, they're not following the, the what the scriptures teach. That's where I land. Look, if a Christian wants to celebrate the praise the Lord, as long as they're not telling me that's how i find uh uh salvation that's not my where my the grounding of my faith is um i, I believe in liberty and culture is a funny thing because honestly the christian culture uh is all rooted in christ but it appears different in every culture as well and i think it's funny though that it can't be uh, Ju judaism is the only one where it gets criticized um, because of what the New Testament teaches about it. So there is some, you know, again, if you go to India, China, wherever, culture can adapt to Christianity as long as it's not unbiblical. But in Judaism, it's funny. All of a sudden, it's a, you've got to un it all. 
Um, and I, I want to be careful of that, but I believe in liberty, 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 liberty. Gary, one last question. Or are we good? I think we're good. We're we're five to the hour, so I think okay. we're good. We're heading to Israel, as I told you, in three weeks. Do you have any advice for us on your book or anything out of your personal experience that we should know? Where, where are you where are you gonna be going and how are you getting around? We're going with Jerusalem University College. We're taking a course uh, by audits called uh archaeological and geographical geography, geography of, yeah. Yeah, of Israel. It's a three so we're going everywhere. We're going you know, everywhere you're be on a bus. bus. With people? Yes. Well, on a bus. except for the days we're on our own. Yeah, there are some few days that we will be on our own. If you give an idea of where you'll be on your own, I can send you some fun ideas. And you know, if you have an itinerary, I'd love to see it because maybe if you're on your own, there's some special things that you can do. Especially Gary and Scott, it sounds like you love the history of modern Israel as well. I don't know if JUC will go into uh that more modern component they don't even go to tel aviv they don't no no they don't go no. to tel aviv they don't go no. to the knesset you know any of that kind of stuff but i will send you our uh, itinerary with things on it that we're going to do on our own as well oh that would be great i'd love to see it have you been to the nazareth billing yes how is that worthwhile to go to the guy who made nazareth village is the same guy that made the um uh Bible Museum. I don't know if you've been to the museum yet. The one in DC? Yeah. Or um yeah. you'll you'll see similarities of the like feeling of the experience. Um okay. I think it's fun to do. Uh there are some people that think it's kind of corny, but I think it kind of gives a good picture of what first century Nazareth was like. And uh you get a nice biblical meal, you know, you can order a biblical meal, I believe, while you're there. That's what we normally do. Mm -hmm. I like it. You know, I'd always encourage people to at least do it once. Okay. Well, we appreciate having you on with us. Absolutely. And, um, we love Israel. Gary and I do. Uh, and, uh, you know, we're getting a little bit older, but we're really excited to go back this time. And we're excited that Gabe has um, your influence on him through Friends of Israel and the work, work relationship you've developed. So we want to thank you. We want to ask God to bless you and bless your ministry. And uh, let's have a word of prayer and then we'll yeah. end. Father, we thank you so much for Chris. We thank you for the friends of Israel. We pray, Lord, for their ministry that it would go forward and reach many people with the gospel of Christ, both Jewish and Gentile. Make them believers and join our family as members of the body of Christ. Mm. So we thank you for him and ask, Lord, your blessing upon him. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. If you're Thank bored you. tonight, gentlemen, and you want to come to my Ben-Gurion class, starts at 7.30 Eastern time, you can register for free at foiequip.org. And uh, I'd love to see you on there if if ever opportunity you can jump on. But uh, Thank you. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah, big, Appreciate big fans you of FOI. Don't forget to buy Chris's book at Amazon or Friends of Israel's website. Bye, all. Israel, Israel Bye. always. Good night. Shalom, shalom. Shalom, shalom. Thank you for listening to another episode of The Book Podcast. If you liked what you heard and want to support us, like, follow, subscribe on any podcasting platform, 
on YouTube, on Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter. Simply type in at hear the book pod, at hear the book pod. Thank you. See you next time.